0: got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Ask Science Mike! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, it is my pleasure to welcome so many new listeners to the program. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, and this week we're going to do something pretty special I'm really excited about that uh, took a lot of uh, support to pull off. Um, recently I released my second book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, uh, worldwide, and it has been so fun to finally have that book out. It has been so much fun to finally hear people's responses and see how uh, this work that has been such a labor of love for me uh, is impacting your lives, and my publisher is letting us do something really special here. Uh, This episode of Ask Science Mike is the first chapter of my audiobook in its entirety, with no edits. Uh, A huge thank you to Penguin Random House, specifically the Convergent Books imprint there, uh, for letting me use this audio on the podcast. Uh, this is just a, a free bonus uh, for everyone who listens. It also lets you hear what the audiobook is like, and the first chapter of the book, I think, kind of stands on its own. Um, so that's what we'll hear this week, 31 minutes of my audiobook. If you're like, I wonder what an audiobook from Science Mike sounds like, guess what? You'll know very, very soon. Because <laughs> uh, that's what this episode is going to be. Um On that note, wow, wow, am I having fun at these in-home tour events. I thought it would be fun, and it's more fun than I expected. It has just been wonderful. I mean, absolutely wonderful. I've enjoyed them so tremendously. We get together. I talk about what's in the book, and then we get together, and... You, anyone who wants to come on camera, gets to come on camera and ask questions or share thoughts and have a little conversation with me. And it's just so wonderful. Every single event has had so many people in it. Um, I, I was worried they'd be ghost towns, and none of them have been. Every event is uh, has a great number of people. I would dare say a perfect number of people arrive for us to have a great evening together. They're engaging. They're fun. I've just never been a part of anything like it, and that's because of all of you. And so this week, Washington, D.C., New York, and Chicago, I'm headed your way virtually. Now, if you've looked at the tour, you've gone to MikeMcCarg.com slash new book or AskScienceMike.com slash new book and clicked on the tour link, and you've been like, what? Mike's not coming near me. Don't forget, you can attend literally any event because this is an online virtual event. Uh, they are they are roughly geographically oriented so people can get together with people in their city, but you can be a guest at any event. Uh, and what if you already have a book? That's fine. Just grab a free ticket. There's free tickets available at every single stop. I want anyone who wants to participate to be able to participate regardless of economic means. So I'd love to see you on tour. Every event has gone great. We've got a few more weeks of this uh, together, um, so... You know, all the way until June fifth, we've got events going on every single week. So I'd love to see you at one of those. Um, So uh, I guess without any further delay, I will uh, go ahead and uh, share the book with you. Um, So this is the first chapter of my best-selling book uh, in the Audible format, and uh, it's called "You're a Miracle and a Pain." in the Ass. Audio excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from You're a Miracle and A Pain in the Ass by Mike McCarg, narrated by the author. One. Why did I do that? The battle of you versus you. The barrel of a shotgun tastes like pocket change and fireworks. The flavor is overwhelming, like a battery pressed to your tongue, though the taste and aroma are quickly matched by the discomfort of what it takes, physically, to put such an instrument in your mouth. After placing the stock of the weapon on the ground, you lean forward and awkwardly bow your head, as if in prayer. If your goal is suicide, and it must be, or why else are you pointing a shotgun at your head, You want to make sure as much shot as possible passes through your brain. So still leaning forward, you lift your forehead into a less penitent posture. The result is pain, with the barrel smashing against your teeth and jabbing into the gums behind them. Shotguns are called long guns for a reason. With the barrel in your mouth, you can't reach the trigger while maintaining the critical head-to-barrel angle My solution to this problem was improvised. I slipped off my right shoe and put my toe on the trigger. Doing so stretched my hip flexors uncomfortably and put strain on my knee. I've never liked pain, but I could cope with this discomfort. In a few seconds, I wouldn't feel anything ever again. I was 16 years old and tired of pain, rejection and fear. My heart ached so much and so constantly that I didn't want to have a heart anymore. So here I was, sitting in my parents' bedroom with my father's hunting gun in my mouth. I took a deep, smoky, metallic breath and pushed the trigger with my toe. I felt the clunk even more than I heard it. It reverberated through my teeth and into my skull. I'll never forget that feeling, the ultimate anticlimax. Confusion washed over me, bordering on panic. How was I alive? Turns out, I'd cocked the gun successfully, but hadn't loaded it right. I was saved by my ignorance of guns and too afraid to try again. My heartbeat hit triple digits as I fell on the brown carpeted floor and sobbed. I hadn't been an obvious candidate for a suicide attempt. I was a lanky teenager who played in a band and had a lot of friends. My parents loved me and provided a lifestyle that was comfortably middle class. I had a car and everything. My life looked about as stable and secure as adolescence can be. Lying on the floor that day, I couldn't believe that I'd pulled the trigger. Taking one's own life goes against some of our most powerful instincts, those for living and self-preservation. This is why, when someone attempts suicide, the most obvious response for the people closest to them is to ask the unanswerable question, why? For people like me, however, those who have survived suicide attempts, there's an additional, equally puzzling question. Did I really want to die? The answer seems clear. After all, I'd put a loaded gun in my mouth and pulled the trigger. But if I'd really wanted to die, why hadn't I picked up the shotgun, troubleshooted the problem, and then tried again? How could I want to die badly enough to pull a trigger once, but not twice? Why? Instead, did I lie on the floor full of grief and shame, lamenting that I had failed even at killing myself, while feeling thrilled by the tears on my cheeks because those tears meant I was still alive. How could I be happy at the same time I wished to be dead? My struggle over suicide was life or death. My feelings warred with themselves, fighting in equal measure for another breath. And a final one. But who was I struggling with? I was the only one in the room. On the morning I write this, the California sun streams into the bedroom I share with my wife, Jenny. Our dogs have started to prance around the foot of our bed, anxious for us to wake up. They're older dogs with gray muzzles and a love of naps. They're mellow enough not to bark or jump on their bed, But they've learned that their nails make a ceaseless click-clack on the hardwood floor that reliably breaks the slumber of their human roommates. Time to get up, they say, as politely as a canine can muster. This year has brought a lot of change to my family. One of the smaller changes was moving across the country from Florida to California. Jenny and I had both lived in Tallahassee our entire lives and it's hard to imagine a bigger change than moving from our sleepy southern hometown to a city like Los Angeles. The move has been both thrilling and exhausting. A megacity has a lot more things to do, but somehow far fewer places to park. I often cope with stress by eating, and L.A. is more than happy to enable me. I've been packing on the pounds while at home and packing them on while I travel for events. It's a bad cycle. So last night, I decided that I would take a walk when I woke up. I love going for walks. Aside from the obvious health benefits, I find that time spent walking outside pays dividends in my emotional well-being and makes me more creative and focused once I sit down at my desk. Plus, the perfect Southern California weather knocks out my favorite excuse for avoiding exercise, heat combined with high humidity. Most mornings, I wake up with the intent of roaming around the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains before getting on with my day. But this morning, I just watched that famous golden sunlight through the window and ate a banana in my favorite chair, even as a small voice in my head told me, It's not too late. Just go outside and walk now. This happens to me all the time. How many mornings have I wasted by snagging my iPhone off the nightstand instead of leaving it there until I've eaten breakfast with my family? I can't even estimate the percentage. Why do I always walk past the juice bar and buy my afternoon snack at the Little Shop Donut Friend? Why do I so often choose to do things I know aren't best for me? Why do I sit on the couch when I love to go outside? Why do I watch late-night TV when mornings are my favorite part of the day? I don't even like television. Why do I do these things even though I know I feel shame later, after I do them? Lucky for me, I am not alone. Part of my work, and we'll get to this later, involves listening to people talk about the parts of their lives that frustrate them most. It seems we all struggle with late night Netflix binges, skipped workouts, and deeper existential concerns about our mental health and belonging. I've learned that most people are fighting their own version of this internal war. What's good for us later fights what feels good right now. Guiding this internal debate is a set of hazy, indistinct emotions and impulses that drives us to do things we have little interest in or feel guilty about later. My own feelings and desires often confuse me or seem an outright rebellion against my will. But it's not just that I so often struggle to do what I know is right. Sometimes I can't understand why I did something at all. Turns out, I'm not the first person to study this struggle. Imagine you've been invited to participate in an experiment that will test your language skills. The lab is at the end of a hallway, so you walk down it and open the door. A research assistant greets you inside and explains the test is quite simple. You'll be given groupings of five words and asked to create a sentence using four of them. Once you're done, you're told to notify her that you've finished. It's an easy task. Familiar to anyone who has ever made poetry with magnets on the fridge. The cards labeled woman and kind connect with the and is to form the woman is kind. The test is so easy, you may wonder if there are more instructions to come. But when you show your work to the research assistant, she thanks you and tells you you've successfully completed the test. So you leave, walking down the same hallway you walked in from, And get on with your day. No big deal, right? Well, what if I told you that the speed at which you walked down that hallway was predicted by the words that the researchers gave you in your word scramble? What if I told you that when words we associate with elderly people, like wise, obedient, courteous, or alone, are included, subjects in the experiment walk as much as 10 or 20% slower leaving than they did when they came in? It seems unbelievable, doesn't it? But that's exactly what the BBC found when they tried to reproduce a famous experiment on a well-known concept in psychology called priming. There have been many variations of this study, and they've produced some truly shocking results. Let's change the experiment. When you're done with your word scramble, the research assistant engages you in a deep, important-sounding conversation that drags on a little too long. Would you interrupt her and tell her you've completed your task? Researchers found that when people's word scrambles incorporated words we associate with being polite, like kind or respected, they usually waited a full 10 minutes for the conversation to finish. But when people got a word scramble loaded with rude words like brazen or aggressively, they waited only a minute or two before interrupting and saying, hey, I'm done here. Experiments in priming have made people perform better at trivial pursuit after completing word scrambles involving words associated with intelligence. Another study indicated that people are more likely to vote for a tax increase to support education if their polling place is a school. The point is this. We feel like we're in control of our lives and that we make decisions based on evaluating circumstances with our rational minds but research is showing us that we're far from the rational actors we believe ourselves to be. A host of factors are at play in every thought or feeling we have and every action we undertake. I imagine some of your minds are blown by the concept of priming, while others of you may have heard about it in a TED Talk or read about it in a best-selling book. But I choose to mention it here because it sets an important foundation for the rest of this book, You are not the rational, autonomous actor that you believe yourself to be. Not even close. We experience our lives as a series of choices that we make, but when we examine human behavior via behavioral science or brain imaging, we find that our choices don't happen in a vacuum. Covert cues and features of our biological systems act like the strings on a marionette, guiding our movements with inexorable tugs towards being courteous or rude or even conservative or liberal. The sciences have long revealed the limits of our willpower and decision-making, yet when it comes to addressing the problems that frustrate us most, our politics, our religions, and an endless library of self-help tomes all place an overwhelming emphasis on individual responsibility and initiative. Something has to give. I'm always so thankful for the sponsors of Ask Science Mike. They just make the show possible. But I want you to know, I'm really selective. I turn down a lot of sponsors for this program, believe it or not. Uh, Even in a pandemic, I'm careful about who uh, I bring on to support this program. And two of my longest-standing sponsors... uh, are behind this episode today. And the first of those is KiwiCo. KiwiCo is just an amazing company. They make hands on interactive learning products, specifically in science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. Uh, they send something called a Kiwi crate. These are designed right in California and uh, they're age graded. So you can get a crate for people. You know, young children all the way from you know birth to 24 months on up into the toddler years, the young child years, the teen years, all the way up into the adult years with the Eureka crates and the maker crates. In this time when we are physical distancing, this is a great resource because it does it facilitates really fun, hands-on learning. So uh, my right now, my kitchen table in my house is covered in Kiwi Crates as me and my wife Jenny and my daughters Madison and Macy all do Kiwi Crates to not only pass the time but to be engaged and to learn and this time when my kids are doing distance learning at school I love that they're also doing something practical and hands-on and participatory and fun. Kiwi Crates are amazing. Uh, there's free shipping on these for every subscription within the US. You can cancel anytime. There is no commitment. So Uh, If you'd like to get a special offer just for Ask Science Mike listeners, you can go to kiwico.com slash asksciencemike and get 60% off your first month of any line. And honestly, I just can't recommend KiwiCo enough. Again, go to kiwico.com slash asksciencemike. And also in this time when we're physical distancing, so many of us are just stuck at home. And I don't know about you, but it has been a real challenge on my mental health. And that's why BetterHelp is there for us. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that connects people with an actual certified trained counselor in an affordable private setting online, anytime, anywhere. You can talk with a licensed professional therapist online. It is A absolutely perfect fit for the challenge that we're in right now. And gosh, I just... BetterHelp offers their services on a sliding scale so people that have income limitations right now or income uncertainty are not excluded from the support that we need. Uh, It's professional. It's affordable. It's effective. It's convenient. BetterHelp is absolutely wonderful. And they're going to offer 10% off your first month service to any listener of Ask Science Mike all you've got to do is go to BetterHelp.com slash Science That's BetterHelp.com slash Science to be connected with one of over 8,000 licensed therapists. And one thing to remember, friends, if you have any difficulty uh, with a, your therapist or it's just not a good fit, they'll help you find a new therapist anytime for no additional charge. So I know one of the things that's most challenging as we seek out the support we need to grow in our lives and to love and accept ourselves more, it's actually just really hard to find a therapist, and BetterHelp is here to help you with that process. So why not get started today by visiting BetterHelp.com slash Science I make my living hosting two podcasts, The Liturgist Podcast and Ask Science Mike. In the course of making these programs, I get asked thousands of questions every year from people struggling to understand their own beliefs, emotions, and behaviors. Those questions are the impetus behind this book. They read like many biopics, all of them pointing to our most common human dilemma. In Boise, A college student asks how she can accept that climate change is real while also eating beef and buying things from Amazon Prime all the time. She understands that her own activity, not just human activity in general, is impacting the climate in catastrophic ways, yet she continues to take actions that needlessly release carbon into our atmosphere. I'm not judging her. I do the same thing all the time. In Chicago, a man in his 30s said he feels depressed all the time. He has read about strategies for coping, but the depression itself leeches his motivation to act in a way that could help him feel better. In Atlanta, a woman told me that she's been cheating on her husband, whom she still loves. She wants to stop, but she just can't break off the affair. She's tried many times to do so. And in Portland... A gay man told me that he lives in constant fear that he'll go to hell for being gay, despite the fact that he hasn't read the Bible in years and has rejected the fundamentalist religion of his childhood. Of course, long before podcasts explored these questions and before scientists captured images of living brains in action, the great spiritual and moral teachers wrestled with this same dilemma. People like Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and Richard Dawkins have offered compelling metaphors to help us understand our struggle to live a good life, to be good people in our own eyes. Yet the struggle never stops. Across the entire arc of human history, we've wrestled with the same inescapable question. Why did I do that? For most of my life, I was a fundamentalist evangelical Christian. I'm not anymore. That story is the subject of my first book. But I am still fascinated by the way ancient wisdom traditions, like Christianity, can bring us solidarity and frame our contemporary struggles as something more lasting. Adam and Eve eat fruit from a forbidden tree as they listen to a seductive whisper. Why did I do that? King David, a man after God's own heart, sees a naked woman bathing on her roof and summons her to his chambers even after learning she is already married to a soldier in his army. Why did I do that? Even Paul of Tarsus, credited with writing more of the Christian Bible than anyone else, has his own take on it. Paul writes, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Why did I do that? We hear it from every pulpit and every Bible study. But we also hear it in every weight loss plan, self-help book, and recovery meeting. People spend billions of dollars per year and countless hours struggling with the same question. Why did I do that? The ancient scriptures attempt to describe a life of virtue, but they are short on practical instructions. How do we think on things that are pure when our phone never stops dinging? How can we live with peace and gratitude when our lives are measured paycheck to paycheck? How, exactly, does one renew their mind daily, Paul? And have modern attempts at self-control fared any better? There's overwhelming evidence that diets don't work, any of them. Self help books that offer a revolutionary insight never seem to actually revolutionize the world. In fact, only a tiny fraction of any such book's readers find themselves changed in any meaningful way. Today, our eyes are starting to open. Neuroscience, behavioral economics, and cognitive psychology offer powerful insights into the question that plagued Paul and the everyday anxieties that plague our entire species. For the first time, we're beginning to learn why our actions are so often out of sync with our intent. There's more going on in you than you are aware of. Cues in your environment The actions of those around you, the words you hear, read, and think, your past experiences, your body's systems, the structures in your brain, and yes, your own willpower. All of these factors come together to compose your deepest thoughts and feelings and ultimately what you do. You've been taught to think of yourself as an individual, but we're learning that's not the most accurate way to view a person. You are a vast collection of brain cells and bacteria, a teeming ocean of life checking Instagram for likes. Though you may think of yourself as the conductor of the orchestra that is your life, you are more like the orchestra itself, a myriad of musicians coming together to create a single symphony. Each day, I am surprised that my struggle to learn who I am has grown into podcasts that reach an audience of millions. I am not a scientist. I am not a pastor. I don't have any formal scientific or theological education. In fact, I dropped out of community college after six weeks. The success of my work, launching me from a tech nerd in the advertising business, To a D-list internet celebrity is a mystery I've been trying to understand for years. All of this started when I began telling people a story about my life, what it was like to be a deeply religious person who stopped believing in God. Every community has taboos that mark some topics as unspeakable, and the religious fundamentalism of my youth was no different. I started to tell my story because I suspected that many people felt suffocated, alienated, and afraid under the weight of those taboos, and I was right. In the process of defying taboo and being honest about my life experiences, I've met thousands of people around the world and gotten messages from tens of thousands more. About 12% of my audience calls themselves evangelical Christians. Oddly enough, about 12% also identify as atheist. The largest block is made up of people who don't use any religious or spiritual label at all. That kind of spiritual diversity isn't common in media. How on earth do people with such different perspectives share space? The common ingredient in this spiritually diverse group is rejection. Almost everyone who listens regularly has been ostracized from a community for questioning or deconstructing the assumptions of that community. Plenty of them are former evangelicals, but many are also secularists who had a transcendent experience and found that their unbelieving friends or families didn't want to hear about it. They find themselves living as exiles, grieving the loss of a community that was dear to them. But once they enter the wilderness, their deconstruction process spreads. They begin to deconstruct their assumptions about politics, sexuality, gender, race, and every other component of their former worldview. Glance at social media and you will see that this process is playing out across human societies. For many reasons, our species is in the middle of a renegotiation of what it means to be a good person. Vital work is happening to confront the widespread racism, sexism, homophobia, and ableism in our world. I support and celebrate that process. But as we tear apart all the old scripts, millions of people have shown that they feel lost and confused. Everyone wants to be a good person, but few have any idea what that looks like 20 years into a new millennium. Many of the cherished lessons from our childhood—we're all the same, we're all equal, Western society is a beacon of hope in the world—have turned out to be fanciful at best. A more complete understanding of history shows us that many of us who feel like good people play an active role in the oppression of people all over the world, including in our home countries. We may believe that everyone is equal but the data are clear that we're doing a terrible job of treating everyone equally. Many of us have learned how to question and reject harmful assumptions, but we're struggling to create new beliefs and behaviors to replace the older ones we've rejected. This is a time for action and for serious conversations. But many of us were raised in cultures that value comfort and civility over truth-telling. And because of that, we tend to shut down at the very moment we need to rise up. What's next for us? How do we create the kind of world we want to live in instead of coasting along as the old one burns itself down? This isn't a self-help book. I don't have one weird trick to help you lose weight. There will be no aha moment that enables you to change the things you don't like about yourself or eliminate bad habits in just 30 days. That's not to say personal change is impossible. Quite the contrary. There have been periods of my life when I've had remarkable success changing habits that I knew were unhealthy. 23 years ago, I put a gun in my mouth and pulled the trigger. Fifteen years ago, I had such problems with hoarding in organization that I was afraid to let people see my office, my car, or my home. Less than ten years ago, I weighed more than 300 pounds. I couldn't see my feet when I looked down, and my shoelaces were always tied on the sides because I couldn't reach my feet without crossing my legs. I have wrestled with my demons. And each time I've triumphed over them, there has been a pattern. First, I'd discover something in the sciences that helped me understand myself better. Next, I would study the work of experts in their fields and sometimes spiritual teachers to devise a strategy to modify how I thought, felt, and acted. Finally, I would track these changes over time to make sure that it worked. Using this method, I've done some amazing things. I lost more than 100 pounds and ran a marathon. My home and office are clean and organized, and I have learned to let go of material things. My life is full of deep, meaningful relationships that I engage in vulnerably. And I never, ever put the barrel of a gun in my mouth but this book isn't about those things. In fact, the last 18 months of my life have looked less like a string of successes and more like a parade of failure, loss, and confusion. I've had mental breakdowns and major relationship conflicts. I have watched one of my own children struggle with an eating disorder, been diagnosed with a significant disability, lost a dear friend, and been hospitalized with heart disease. My successes and failures all have something in common. Each of them has been a chapter in a much larger project. A multi-decade journey to arrive at something far more precious, but also much harder to measure and market. I like me. I don't just tolerate me or accept me. I like me. In fact, I love me. I am a huge fan of me, from the way I mispronounce words to the hair on my back. When I look in the mirror, I see a miracle billions of years in the making, a collection of cells that follow an unbroken line to the very first life on this planet. Even in my most challenging moments, if I plumb the depths of what science reveals about my mind and body, it can lead me to a place of remarkable peace with myself. Here's the trick. There is no trick. There is no quick, easy road to self-acceptance and grace. I've spent the last 20 years furiously studying the sciences to better understand humanity not because I was curious, but because I was dying. The stakes for me were life and death, and I am alive. This is a book about you learning that you are a miracle too. I want to start you on a journey that ends with you looking in the mirror one day, unable to hold back tears because instead of seeing someone who isn't tall, thin, young, or attractive enough, you instead see a profound and rare being who is worthy of love. I want you to see yourself and be awed, because you are truly awesome. And I mean awesome in the cosmic sense, not the cultural one. I want to introduce you to the marvelous miracle you meet in the mirror every morning. I want to show you the unbelievable systems that create your every moment because it's the key to coping with the times when you feel less like a miracle and more like an unbelievable pain in your own ass. The very things that make our behavior so frustrating are the mark of a feat that only life can produce, consciousness. Consciousness is a trickster, but it's a remarkable magician. It takes such a diverse cast of characters, the cells in your body, the bacteria in your belly, the light striking your eyes, the pressure waves echoing down your ear canal, and it produces the most amazing trick I've seen in our world, experiences. Your consciousness works this magic even as more ancient parts of your body operate with a nostalgia for a world that passed when humans first crafted civilization. Your consciousness is often on the losing side of a never-ending tug-of-war against your impulses, your emotions, and your environment. It takes all this beautiful chaos and weaves it into a single story that you live, becoming aware of it only in the moment when you tell it. In the rest of this book, we'll look into what science has learned about your brain and your body and how the two relate. We'll explore the thriving biosphere within you and how it impacts how you feel. We'll plumb the depths of the best contemporary understanding of the invisible rails that guide your thoughts and the way the pain of your past remains present with you today. On that journey, we'll cover some familiar ground like Cognitive Behavioral Therapy or the Triune Model of the Brain. But we'll also explore some less familiar ground, like Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, Supernormal Stimulus, and Polyvagal Theory. We'll map out why so much of the modern world leaves us stressed out, lonely, and confused, and how words shape our reality more powerfully than we can imagine. We'll learn about the evolutionary role our feelings play, even the ones we don't like. We'll soar through the rarefied air of human relationships and what makes them healthy. As we do so, you may learn to love yourself a little more, to embrace feelings you don't enjoy, and to be more conscious of the ways you operate on autopilot. You may learn to appreciate sadness or anger, or have an aha moment about a relationship that once went wrong. You could even pick up strategies for changing your behavior and your thoughts and feelings over time with a heavy dose of patience, tears, self-reflection, and the occasional bout of excruciating work. But most of all, I hope you leave this journey with a new appreciation for my favorite thing in all this universe we inhabit, the miracle of you.